Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 2000 film Hamlet. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? Doing great, Sam. Thanks. Uh, Barrett, this is probably the second, the, maybe the third film version of Hamlet that I've seen. This Hamlet is a much um, a much filmed play of Shakespeare. Maybe maybe we will uh, get into that. Um, but I will say all the versions of Hamlet I've seen are uh, are very different. Actually, I would say no. It's a fourth version of Hamlet that I've seen for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, what what is your history with this film? So this came out in two thousand. So were you you would have been teaching Shakespeare at this time, right? Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, I probably at this point I was thinking about developing my Shakespeare and film course that I've mentioned in the past. So I uh, at this time I was there was a journal called Mars Hill Review um, that published late 90s into the early 2000s. And I kind of got a little bit of a gig doing uh, film reviews, even film essays for them. So this is a film that I actually reviewed for Mars Hill Review. And we can talk a little bit about that. Um, so I went to see it uh, at the Lagoon Theater uh, in uptown Minneapolis uh, when it came out in in 2000. So that was my my first experience of, of the film. And then I wrote um, a kind of a snarky review of it, to be frank. So that 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 is actually really interesting to me because because you wrote that you actually have a record of your thoughts about it at the time. So I'm curious. I presume you reread that. Yes, I reread it, and uh, well, it's 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 funny, Sam, because um, as I said, I, I wrote a snarky, pretty pretty negative review. Um, it, I, I'm actually kind of proud of it. I reread it, and I thought, well, that's a that's a pretty good review. Um, and then and then I revisited the film. I'm not sure exactly when I watched it a second time, and I watched it a second time, and I felt very differently about the film. Um, I'm not. I don't remember what I'd watched in the meantime, but there was something that made me more open to it than I had been previously. So, and now I find myself kind of um, back in kind of a middle position. I, I still have some serious reservations about the film, but there are also some things I like about the film. So I'm kind of coming down in the middle. I guess I've decided it's a film worth watching, uh, which is not the way I felt after my initial review. Well, it's interesting. So even your uh critical arc with this film sort of matches the critical arc of the film this is a very uh as i was reading reviews of it and most of the stuff i read about it was written kind of at the time i don't know that this is a movie people are writing a lot about now although i'm gonna i will i will make the case that it is fascinating to watch in 2021 um but it seems like there were either people who kind of panned it or there were reviews that were like, this is kind of great. I mean, it it felt like, it felt like this, I mean, it's, it's rotten tomato score is at 59%. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of right in the middle of like, it's definitely not ever, not, not everybody loved it. And and the people who didn't like it were sometimes pretty harsh about it. Uh, So this is very interesting to hear kind of your arc with that. Yeah. And actually I, I read, a review you may have run across this a review that somebody did it last in uh in the may in may of 2020 kind of a 20-year review revisiting the film um yeah i you know I, I think part of what influenced me you know it was four years after branna's hamlet but there was still kind of this residue of well you could actually do a lot of hamlet four hours in branna's case and really take the language seriously in a way that I felt this film wasn't taking the language seriously. Um, so the main thing I focused on when I first saw it was I don't feel like there's any epic or tragic quality to this film. It seems like the 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 act of making it more contemporary has kind of 
sucked all the the power out of it at least that was that was my that was my initial feeling you know that to to kind of make hamlet a slacker and, and the contemporary new york setting with people speaking elizabethan english it just it, it didn't it, it it seemed like it was too self-consciously an adaptation but then i've come to see in many ways that that's exactly what almerado was trying to do uh and so in a way it's kind of a meta hamlet I guess that's what I've kind of begun to realize about the film. It's kind of a film that it's not just a straight adaptation of Hamlet. It's an adaptation of how you could adapt Hamlet. And, you know, Amorite has kind of, uh, he's put in references to other Hamlet films, including both Branagh's and Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. Um, there's appearances of other previous Hamlets on video, most notably John Gielgud's. So there's a, there's a lot about the film which is intended to be as self-consciously aware as really Hamlet the character is himself. So in a sense, the form of the film replaces or stands in for Hamlet's soliloquies because Hamlet is a play in which Hamlet is fully conscious of being a player in a play. In fact, the play raises that question about what it means to act and what it means to actually be genuine. So I guess I, I've come to see in the years since I first watched it that the, that the film is doing something quite different with the play than, say, Zeffirelli's or Branagh's or Olivia's Hamlet's are. I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it's a, it's a Hamlet who's maybe read Hamlet before. Mm -hmm. um, and, he, and we definitely watch him watch Hamlet, or at least scenes from Hamlet. Can I point out my favorite meta Hamlet? Because it's so hard. It's so easy to miss. And I'm so proud of myself that I caught it, <laughs> which is in the scene where, uh, where Hamlet is driving the limo. And yeah. uh, Claudius is in the back. And he thinks he, he, he like even points the gun to shoot him and then pulls it back. Did you notice what he steps out into when he leaves the limo? No. It is a it is a Broadway theater which is showing the Lion King musical. Oh, very and, good. And you can't see you can't see the title, but if you look at the typeface, mm -hmm. it is very very clearly like the iconography of Lion King. And there's a, a poster that says uh, "1998 winner Tony Award winner for best musical." So it's like. Lion Aww. King. That's why I said, "Oh, I actually have seen another Hamlet because Lion King is a Hamlet," <laughs> and I was like, "I loved that because they didn't." It's it's so subtle that you would be. It's almost impossible to 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 catch. But I but I saw yeah. that that lettering and I thought, "Did he just put Lion King in this?" And he did. <laughs> and I was like, "That's awesome." I loved I loved that. Um and 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 like you said, the sort of the 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 consciousness of being in a story and maybe sort of making the case that that a hamlet story is a universal story that it is mm -hmm. a story that keeps being not only retold but relived mm -hmm. um so may maybe i kind of want to ask you a question about hamlet since i have somebody who's taught a lot of shakespeare uh hamlet is perhaps the most adapted of shakespeare's plays into film if if it's not the most it's got to be high up there I, w I went through a list on mm -hmm. imdb of all of the hamlets and it just kept going and going yeah. going but especially in the the 90s i mean yeah. in the 90s itself we have between 1990 and 2000 we have three fairly major movie star productions of hamlet you have mel gibson in 1990 you have branna in 96 you have ethan hawk in uh in 2000 i will also point out one of my favorite uh novels of the 90s is a book which is doing lots and lots of things, but one of the things it's doing is uh, is a, a retelling of Hamlet, and that is David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest. Mm -hmm. Is also, you know, there's a lot of Hamlet in uh, in that uh, in that story as well. Uh, why why is Hamlet a story that 
you know, four, 400 years later or more, you know, people are drawn to, and is there something about the 1990s in particular that is a, a Hamlet decade? Yeah, that's a good that's a good question, Sam. I think I think you know one of the reasons why Hamlet is um, is so popular as with Shakespeare's tragedies is I think because it's got a a fairly young protagonist. Um, it's got some fairly uh, you know whether you want to consider them Oedipal issues or not. It's got uh, issues involving family dynamics. It raises uh, I think Ebert points this out in in one of in his review. It raises really fundamental questions: the to be or not to be question. Um, it's dealing with, you know, ambiguity, uh, dealing with, you know, what is my, uh, what is my proper role? What is my duty? How do I even think about the sexuality of my parents? Um, how do I judge appearances? Who are my friends? I mean, there's, you know, I, one of the geniuses of some of Shakespeare's tragedies, Hamlet, and I think this is true of Lear as well, is that even though they have these kind of, you know, cosmic resonances, they're ultimately domestic. And so I think the domestic issues that Hamlet raises, um, you know, not not many of us face the kind of choices that Hamlet faces, but all of us, especially when we're of a certain age, face those kinds of existential questions. Um, why why Hamlet in the nineties? That's a that's a good question. I don't I don't know. I mean, I guess I could look at Almeida's Hamlet and say, well. Uh, at least Amoretus said, "What do we what do what do we think about if Hamlet were alive today and he was kind of this you know slacker generation? What what would what would it look like for him?" Now the Zeffirelli Hamlet is completely different, right? The Zeffirelli Hamlet is let's put Hamlet in uh, in his actual historical context, uh, and then the Branagh Hamlet is well, let's put Hamlet in the 19th century, which was a kind of a big um, kind of a big trend in uh, in Shakespearean um, staging stage productions at that time. So I don't know if, I can't quite see Zeffirelli or Branner responding to a particular cultural moment. I see that much more in Almerita. Mm-hmm. How do you generally feel, and you've, you've hinted at this, about um, sort of modernized Shakespeare, like like putting Shakespeare into a modern setting? I will say the 90s is also full of that. It's full yes. of, maybe not with the language, but I think my generation, as we went to high school and college, realized after the fact hey you guys have kept giving us shakespeare shakespeare plays you just package them as you know teen movies and it's like wait a minute that's shakespeare and that shakespeare julia styles was in a bunch of these you know she's in this film but she was in a bunch uh, i think two others in uh in the 90s uh, that seemed to be her her niche to a certain degree so how do you feel about that and how do you feel about whether or not you preserve the language because that was part of part of this you know as i was reading reviews some people were like i love the way this looks and it feels like this is chock full of ideas but i don't really like i i, I don't like the choice to kind of really stick with the shakespearean language um uh and then other people uh, other reviews were saying well that's actually what's really great about it so i'm sort of curious your thoughts uh generally about you know taking taking these stories and, and do you have a pr- do you have a uh, a preference when it comes to those types of things. Yeah, I, I, well, I want to pick up what you said. You're right. Julia Stiles was kind of the Shakespearean uh, actress to go for the, to, uh, go to for a while. So she, right before this film, she was in 10 Things I Hate About You uh, with Heath Ledger, which is Taming of the Shrew uh, in a modern. And of course, that was part of a, a larger trend. Clueless had come out a few years before, which was a Jane Austen adaptation. And then she was, after this film, she was in O. Uh, which is a retelling of Othello. Um, I don't know. I, I guess it's funny you should ask that, um, 
uh, Sam, because actually in a couple of weeks, I'm, I'm going to propose that we watch one of those. Um, I won't tell you which one right now, but I, I have one. I have one in mind. Um, I guess it's this is kind of like what we were what we were talking last week about Wellesian adaptations. Like there's Shakespeare, and then there's different genres of Shakespeare adaptations. So the ones that kind of just use let's use Shakespearean plot, let's use uh, kind of Shakespearean themes, but not necessarily use Shakespearean language. Um, though those are a really mixed bag, and by and large, I don't find most of those particularly interesting. Um, but I'm always willing to kind of give them a, give them a chance. And I think so. Those are a, a kind of an extreme, uh, an extreme end of adaptation. In terms of those that use the Shakespearean language and have different time settings, um, first of all, I think that that is one of the reasons why Shakespeare is an amazing dramatist. You know, people are always wondering what's you know. Sometimes when I see Shakespeare, I get the question, "What's so great about Shakespeare?" Um, well, I think what is great about Shakespeare is that if, as I look at various adaptations, film adaptations, Shakespeare gets set in a lot of different time periods because the issues that he raises are not only work well, but can come into particularly stark relief depending on when you and when you set them. And you know, I indicated earlier that I had a little bit of a problem with the Elizabethan language in in the case of Almereda when you know you have Denmark Corporation, but then somebody gets called a king. And it, it and 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 you know, so that's that's a little awkward. You kind of get pulled out of it. But at the same time, I I so appreciate what Shakespeare is doing with his language and the way in which the language says things as any poetry does that can't be said any other way. That ultimately, um, it it'll, it'll work for me. Ult ultimately, I I think it's worth um, seeing how a particular theme or a particular situation is illuminated because of the change of time period. So let me give you one quick example. One of the, one of the really great Shakespearean films of the 90s was Richard III uh, with Ian McKellen in 95. Uh, and that was a, a stage production that McKellen was in for several years. It toured England and the United States. And then it was made into a very good film by Richard Loncrane. And I think that putting Richard III and what Shakespeare was dealing with there into the context of modern uh, of a modern society. It just did a really great uh, job of highlighting how the issues of power and manipulation that you deal with in the War of the Roses is just as relevant with World War II or World War III or whatever it is. Now, uh, what was interesting is nearly every review that I, uh, every contemporary review of this film that I read compares it either favorably or not favorably to uh, Baz Luhrmann's Ro Romeo and Juliet, which is another, you know, uh, modern uh, set, set, uh, Shakespeare story set in a, in a, a very modern um, setting. Um, and I think it's really interesting to think about those two movies. I really liked that movie. Um, but there were parts of this that I appreciated uh, so much more. I mean, the, the Luhrmann movie is not surprisingly like hyper stylized, and and it's like not it's it's it is modern, but it's like it feels like it's not set exactly in the world that we live in. It's it's all it's I, I'm it's set in some sort of alternate modern, you know. Um, and again, because it is, yeah, it is hyper stylized that way. And this felt more, especially early on in this movie, it felt very real. It felt like set in a very real world. Some of the shots um, in the really early where they're walking on the streets and. 
at least at that point, there's very little um, score to the movie. Mm. And like, you actually just, you hear the sounds of the streets and you see, you're hearing cars go by and there, I just remember like the camera shot really low. So you can see kind of the towering buildings as they're basically just walking and talking on the streets of New York and stuff like that. I really like that. When I saw that, I realized, Oh, this is modern in a different kind of way. Um, uh, and I, I really like that. And, there's a degree to which I, I wish there I wish there was more of that feel almost uh, through through more of it because you I don't I feel like some of that some of that feeling I had goes away the the further you get into it. partially the more you get into the interiors which are mm. gorgeous and interesting it feels less like we're rooted in this in this real place it's why I I don't know that it's a great scene but I loved the setting of the to be or not to be speech in a blockbuster video in mm-hmm. part because like that is. Uh, a very specific space that a lot of us spent a lot of time in at, at that moment. And it's, so I'm, I'm glad that somebody put into uh, put into film what it felt like to walk through a blockbuster video. But like that also felt like that's a very real space that um, that someone like this Hamlet, like would probably be obsessed with because he's obsessed with, he's always w- filming things, watching things, editing, editing video, things like this. So like that space is really, really interesting to him. So I, I really love those moments where it felt really set in a world that I, I could imagine being in. Well, you know, I, I think one of, one of the things that I also agree with you, Sam, about those opening shots. And one of the ways I think in which those interior and exterior shots are connected is, um, is the interest in reflective surfaces. Um, you know, whether it's the facades of buildings, whether it's interior mirrors, I love, I love the scene when um, he, uh, he's talking to his mother and uncle in the uh, limousine and the, uh, the window is halfway down. So the bottom half of the window is a mirror and the, and the top half is, is an aperture. I just happen to love that particular scene. I love the blockbuster scene. And, you know, what's something we might want to talk about later is ways in which the film is clearly dated. And yet that doesn't work against it as much as I thought it would. But what is playing on the video in the blockbuster when he's walking through? Do you know? I'm trying to remember. I, it's I, I know the image. There's it's like fire in this person yeah. walking, but I didn't. I couldn't place the film. Okay, so the film is The Crow, City of Angels. Oh, okay. And in that film, the character uh, Corvin comes back to life on All Saints Day to avenge his own murder and that of his son. So, huh. not a film I've ever seen. That's just a plot. That's a plot summary. I'm I'm regurgitating, um, but it just it highlights again, like you said earlier about the image of the Lion King in the background. One of the things I increasingly admire about this film, and I think there's certain images that I really haven't gone, I, I need to spend more time looking at. I don't think that Amreda has put anything in the frame that he doesn't want you to pay attention to. So it's like, I, I know some of the things that are in Hamlet's film of the, of the Mousetrap, but others I haven't had time to kind of look more carefully at. But I know that everything that's in there counts for something important. And I really like a filmmaker that asks the audience to pay careful attention and to realize that there's nothing here uh, that's accidental. I had the same thought. I was looking and I, I was, and again, it went by so fast, but like in Hamlet's room, you clearly see books on the bookshelf. It actually reminds me of Zoom calls where people curate the space behind them. It's like, okay, what are the books that he has there? And do those books tell me something? You know, mm-hmm. should I know something about that author? Like, so I feel like there's, like you said, there's so much of that stuff that, and, and it, it, it is all, you have such intention 
um, at least the possibility for such intention. And I assume such intention and in how those sets are even decorated to tell you things. I want to touch on something you said, um, which is the, does this movie feel dated? And is that a, a, a positive, a negative? Mm -hmm. um, I will say that's the part of the movie that I thought was the most fun to watch uh -huh. and, and the most interesting to watch in 2021. Um, so when this movie came out, I would have been 22, 23, somewhere, uh, somewhere in that range when it was made and when it came out. So the fact that it is set in 1999, 2000 is, is a, it's really, really important. Had this movie been made five years earlier or five years later, it feels entirely different. I mean, I, I would actually say this is not this is not so much a contemporary setting as this is a period piece. Yeah. Now, when it was made, it was it was as contemporary as he could be, but it almost instantly by 2008, you know, when we get the first iPhone, and at that point. Uh, you have YouTube, and at that point, you're maybe streaming a few movies off Netflix. Um, you know, like, like it's like the world has fundamentally changed in terms of some of this stuff. But he managed to make this at a perfect moment, maybe the last moment for right now that you could make a period piece. Because if you set a movie in in 2005, if you made a movie right now set in 2005, I'm not sure 2005 would matter that much. I mean, there's political things, stuff like that, but like the culture and the world and even technology doesn't feel that different, especially 2008. Once you get into the iPhone era, right. But 1999, 2000, I was obsessed with the pieces of technology in this because they are all technologies that point to something we're going to be doing a lot of, but not using the things that he's using exactly. So, uh, I mean, all of the things, uh, it's sort of early internet. If internet exists at all in this, it's, it's, it feels very early. Uh, there's really no cell phones. There's definitely no smartphones. There's some early like digital video stuff, but it's, but it feels very, or feels like the first videos that I, that we downloaded or streamed online, which are usually like movie trailers. And like, they were really mm. pixelated and clunky, but you were excited to see video on your computer. Uh, tactile photographs mm. uh, uh you know play a role here uh answering machines fax machines mm -hmm. video cassettes video stores right um i i loved that stuff because he couldn't have known this is all going to become obsolete really quickly so let's capture it all but it, it almost felt like this was something somebody made now to say can i get back to place something in that world because that world Felt like it was a world about to be te technologically a world that was about to become the world we're in, but it's like a few things hadn't happened yet. Um, another film it reminded me of, and this is a this is a weird uh, a weird deep dive. Um, in two thousand nine, um, uh, the documentary filmmaker uh, Andy Timoner. Are you familiar with her at all? No. Okay. Um, she made a movie. Uh, she's great. I've seen a couple of her documentaries and they're fantastic, but she, had a she made a movie called we live in public hmm. and it's about an early like dot com uh, entrepreneur uh, named Josh Harris, who in the late nineties, early two thousands was already obsessed with the idea of streaming video and live streaming video. And it's this whole, he's, he's making all these philosophical claims about how we're going to be in a world where our whole lives are going to become public. Now this is presaging Facebook and 
Twitter and all these things where we we actually are now curating a, a public. Everyone is curating a public image. And he set up these like art installation houses where, you know, 20 people would live in houses that were just all wired out with cameras that were live streaming to the Internet. But so it's so like some of the technologies that I see Hamlet. Doing, I think about Hamlet filming himself a lot. Mm-hmm. And it reminds me of, uh, you know, and, and Harris was doing this kind of around this time. Um, in New York. So it, it just, it made me think of that, of that film, which is a very, uh, I mean, I watched it in 2009 and thought, wow, how like creepy Josh Harris is, but also how prescient he is. And I would, I'd really want to go back and watch that movie, you know, 12 years later and see like, what was he talking about then that even speaks more to kind of some of the things that we're doing now. So it, it made me think of that. So all that is to say, I, I've been talking a lot here. <laughs> I love this as, as a like late nineties period piece. Well, you know, one thing one thing that's interesting, Sam, is that there, there's no such thing as either a timeless production or a timeless film. Every, every, everything is ultimately going to become a period piece of one kind or another. So, you know, if you do Shakespeare in, you know, my wife likes her Shakespeare straight, you know, i.e. I wanted Elizabethan Shakespeare. But the danger of that, and I think the reason why people put Shakespeare in different time periods, the danger of that is that it kind of, um, it makes it hard for you to see, um, I hate to use the word like relevance, but that's the word. It makes it hard for you to see the relevance of, of, of what's going on. Um, at the same time, you know, when it is a different era, uh, as, as the, the 90s are already a different era for us, you also run the risk of kind of estrangement at the same time. Um, but I, but I agree. I, I think, I think that it really, I, I'm not sure that Almereda was trying to make a Hamlet for all time. You know, I, I, I think, I think that you make the Hamlet for the period in which you're making the Hamlet. And then we just, we just reflect on it through those kind of historical, uh, layers. Right. And I, I agree that you, that you can't make something apart from time, but it sure feels like people try sometimes where mm-hmm. it's like, like I want to strip this away from things that will place it in a specific time. And this is the exact opposite of that. It's almost like he wanted to create a very weird time capsule of 1999, 2000. I mean, that's not what he's doing, but, but, but he was so okay with placing it in, in, in a very specific time rather than saying, this is going to feel late 20th century, early 20, early 21st century, but, but like trying to strip away. And I mean, the whole idea of like a blockbuster video store is, is like, I mean, some people would say, well, we don't want to have any like specific corporate logos or things because that will place it in this, mm-hmm. or this you know, or, or we want to have technology. Sometimes the things will create technologies that are basically what we have, but, but it's not exactly that so that you can't, place it in this specific moment um, or make references to other things happening in the world. And, um, and what I loved about this was just the, how boldly he embraced placing it in a exact moment almost. Yeah. And be- before this uh, slips away from me, one of the, uh, you, we, you talked earlier about, you know, what's going on in the background and you know, what books is handled on my shelf. I noticed that he has um, volumes by Mayakovsky. He was a, uh, a Russian poet of the early uh, 20th century who committed suicide at the age of 36. Um, and so that seems like an appropriate person for, uh, for Hamlet to have. Uh, he's got Che Guevara uh, in, the, in the background. Those are a couple of the ones that stuck in my head. I think there's a skull um, at some point, Memento Mori. 
Um, another thing, you know, speaking of Hamlet as video obsessive, video producer, filmmaker, I loved the idea of because I, I actually was watching it thinking, how are they going to do the play? And the fact that they they turned it into this this uh, video collage um, art film thing, I really really liked. I loved that scene. Um, I kind of wish I could have saw more of kind of you know like like I was upset when when the action of the of the film starts back up and it's like <laughs> oh I was really interested in that other thing and I was and I was also wondering like how long is he gonna make this because like mm. he, if he wanted it he could have sat us there for twenty five minutes and just said mm -hmm. nope we're gonna embed an art film inside of this and it plays a role in the plot and like how much is he gonna cut away or how much are we just gonna watch this and I love. I love moments like that to, to think like how bold is this filmmaker going to be to say, I'm going to embed this other piece within this piece. So I, I really liked, I, I really liked the, uh, the idea of doing that. And he, and it's not out of place for Hamlet because we see Hamlet making this mm -hmm. or, or working, manipulating this video kind of throughout the early part of the film. Um, did you have other, I, I know on the, the Wikipedia page for this, it has a big list of kind of, things that are adapted in this things that are modernized like the hotel elsinore and some of these other things did you have other things that stand out to you in terms of uh specific uh translation choices that way if that's the word to use or adaptations yeah you know i i i liked uh ophelia's mad scene where julia styles she's naming all the flowers and she's got the polaroid photographs of, of the flowers i i i i really like that um I like the whole notion that, you know, rather than uh, the ship becomes an airplane and Hamlet hacks into the computer in order to make sure that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern uh, are, are, are killed, I, I, I like that. Um, you know, and, uh, and, you know, firearms rather than, uh, rather than rapiers at the end for the death, for the death scene, all, all, all that worked. And uh, I, I even like, um, you know, even though I missed the comedy of the gravedigger scene, you know, that Almereda does away with that. I think it's a good choice to do away with that. I don't think it would have fit with the film, but I love this snippet of Bob Dylan's all on the watch watchtower being sung by the by the gravedigger who is Jeffrey Wright. Um, I just, I, I mean, it, again, it's not one of those things, it's 10 seconds, but it's a, it's a commentary, right? Because if you know the Dylan song, you know that it's a kind of a, it's kind of this weird vision of apocalypse and exactly what does it mean and you know uh, so I, I just I, I happen to really like those those little moments because um, uh, because I, I think part of it Sam it's all about again as I think back about my my original review of this film it's it's all about taking uh, taking a different perspective on Hamlet. And one of the things I realized that Amrade is doing in this film is the reason the film is titled Hamlet is not only because that was the name of Shakespeare's play, but think about it differently. Think about this film being called Hamlet because it's about Hamlet. I mean, Shakespeare's play is about Hamlet, but it's about a lot of other things as well. But I think that what Amreda has done is he's really kind of, there aren't many scenes, I'm not sure how many, there aren't many scenes in which Ethan Hawke does not appear. Um, as opposed to in Shakespeare's play, Hamlet kind of disappears for a good part of act four. And you get a lot more stuff with Laertes and, uh, and Claudius. And there's very few scenes here in which Hamlet is not involved. 
And so I think part of what Amrader was trying to do was to say, I, I, I really want to explore what it means to be Hamlet in, in the year 2000. Um, and I also want to say, because this is an illusion you made a couple of weeks ago, that Almoreda actually referred to Orson Welles's Macbeth uh, when he was thinking about this film. And he says, if Orson Welles can describe his Macbeth as a rough charcoal sketch of the play, then it told Almoreda, you don't have to make a lavish production in order to have a Shakespeare movie that's accessible and alive. And I think that was kind of his way into the, in, into the film. Yeah, and, and speaking about some of the adaptations that you mentioned, um, one of the ones that I loved is, I mean, the obvious one is to be like, well, yeah, people aren't going to kill each other with swords, right? Yes. Except that they then set it up where you see the two people fencing and you're like, oh, maybe they're going to kill each other with swords. <laughs> and then they don't. Like, that was great. Because I because I was just like, oh, I, I, we're back in. It's, we hit that moment. It's like, all right, we're back into pretty straight Shakespeare. Yeah. And then in the fact that it doesn't do that. And it's like, you know, why are they, why would they be people who fence? Well, there's are probably prep school kids and maybe they have fencing teams there. It's like, so yeah. sure, sure. Like this all sort of, it, it, it kind of works and then, and then shifts. I want to talk about casting and performances too, because that's a, you know, uh, another, another piece as you're thinking about a, a film like this, like the story itself is probably not likely to surprise you or shock you. We've both read Hamlet many times, seen Hamlets. So it's always interesting to, to think about uh, the casting. So I'm curious as you think about, um, the performances here, who are people who stand out to you where you say this person was really well cast or gave a really great performance? And are there people where you're like, that one didn't work for me? You know, it, it's funny because my answer to that is going to be the same for, for okay. one role. And that is maybe the obvious one, which is Bill Murray as Polonius. Um, and initially, I wasn't sure it was going to work. And yet at the same time, I think he was a kind of a brilliant casting choice because Polonius is, um, he is kind of a fool, uh, but at the same time, he's kind of wise. And so I think Bill Murray, I think, I think it's Ebert who says in his review that you, that Bill Murray, you, you think he's about to make a joke and he doesn't. Um, and I actually, so I, I, I thought Bill Murray was a, was a really good choice. Um, can, we, can we talk about Bill Murray? I just, I, I, I want to just jump in on this. He was the character I struggled the most with. Okay. And it's in part because I agree with you. The casting is great. Like, like when you think about who Polonius is, it's like, that is, it's inspired casting. But I was, as I think about the actual performance though, mm. and I think about what I love about Bill Murray is that usually when I see him in something, whether it is an eighties comedy whether it's an old Saturday Night Live sketch, whether it is a Wes Anderson movie, whether it's in, you know, him playing a very serious role. Like, I believe the stuff he's saying. Like, I, I, I believe, and, and, the pro, and, and I think partially that is, I assume, and I could be wrong, I assume that Bill Murray plays a lot with, like, what his character says. And so it feels natural coming out of him because I assume it's like, yeah, I know what I'm supposed to say. And then there's a degree of, freedom to ad lib and work around that. And I, and I, I assume there was less of that here. So it felt like, well, he's saying Shakespeare, like, like, like instead of like, I will say some of the other characters, when they talked, the things they said, I was like, yes, that is what you are saying. And this felt, and maybe it's just because I know we know Bill Murray too much, or it's like, this feels like Bill Murray reciting Shakespeare instead of this feels like Polonius 
saying these things. And maybe that's like a meta thing that I'm not to yet, but, but he was the one I struggled with the most. And he's the one that I wanted to love the most because mm. I do think the casting is great. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I'm really pretty happy, you know, with most of the performances. I, I know that people kind of critiqued uh, Hawk's delivery of lines, but I thought he was much better than I, I always had trouble with DiCaprio and Romeo and Juliet. I didn't think DiCaprio knew how to say the verse at all. Um, I love Julia Stiles' performance because I think she communicates as much by what she doesn't say as by what she does. She spends a lot of time not talking, and I think it's a real great commentary on how um, she's been disempowered by the, by the men around her. Um, I always have a soft spot for Kyle MacLachlan. Um, I go way back with him, you know, to, J to David Lynch films. So, uh, and then Diane Verona is, I think, a, is a very good Gertrude. So I, re I, I really enjoyed almost all the performances. Yeah, I, I, I had uh, Diane Verona at, marked down as probably the best thing in this film. I thought she was, a, I loved every time she was on screen. I loved, for a lot of it, she's not saying much, but she's, you're watching her respond to things that are happening around her, respond to things other people are saying. And then, and then when she does act and talk, like I, I'm, yeah, I, I thought she was great. Uh, I, I also am a sucker for Kyle McLaughlin. I actually thought he was really well cast as uh, as this character. He's not the person that would have come to mind, but once he was there, I was like, yes, that's that's the perfect person. I also really liked Ethan Hawke. Um, I loved Sam Shepard. I really, yeah. I really like Sam Shepard. He's he's Chuck Yeager in the right stuff. So <laughs> like, I'm one of that's one of my. I don't know why I love that movie, but I really love that movie, and so like. I I I I felt I felt um, close to him. I struggled a little bit with Liev Shriver as Laertes, mm. only because again I'm I'm familiar with Liev Shriver, and mm. I, and I just kept thinking, huh, what's Liev Shriver doing here? I, and I and it's not that like I didn't feel that way about Comic Lock, and I didn't feel that way about Ethan Hawke, but mm. something about Liev Shriver just made me feel like, oh, you're. I don't know. I, there, I uh, it just didn't. It didn't. I mean, and he's and it's not that it's a bad performance. I think it's just. I have baggage with him in different ways. Maybe I don't know. Um, I also I, did like the person who played Horatio, uh, Carl Geary. Geary, he was um, very good. Yeah, yeah. I, but it, but again, that's another case where um, there's been some deliberate editing by Almereda, so the relationship between Hamlet and Horatio doesn't have the same resonance that it does in say a full length play. I want to back up and say, and I know no more about this than what I'm going to say, but I have to say it anyway. I understand that Diane Verona played Hamlet, I mean was Hamlet in a stage production. Uh, and there's a long history of breaches Hamlets, that is women playing Hamlet going back to the 19th century. Uh, Sarah Bernhardt did that. So um, she's fo she followed in that tradition. So she probably, of all the people in that film, uh, was most familiar with the play. Well, interestingly, so did Liev Shriver. Yes, <laughs> did, exactly. Did, you know, so so there's there's lots of Hamlets yeah. uh, uh, running around here. Uh, two other just tiny casting things that were just fun to see. I love seeing, um, you mentioned Jeffrey Ed already. I loved seeing Tim Blake, Tim Blake Nelson. <laughs> um, just because he's not in a lot of movies and to have him show up there just warm my heart because I really like him. And then I didn't even realize that. Did you know who Fortinbras is? Because he's not in it. There's just pictures of him. Uh, it, yes, uh, but I can't remember. I, I did read who that is. I don't remember who it is. Casey Affleck. Casey Affleck. That's right. Um, do, do you know that Tim Blake Nelson wrote and directed O? Oh really? I didn't know that. Yeah, that that yeah that that Shakespearean adaptation we talked about earlier. That's a Tim Blake Nelson film. So. Oh, fascinating! Yeah. Wow. Um, let's see. What else do I have on my list here? 
Um, I loved this. This is just a connected to nothing. I loved the scene scene at the Guggenheim. Yes. Um, I, I I loved the the use of the kind of layers of that of that building, um, and seeing. Especially because you're seeing Ophelia sort of have this sort of freak out and she's far enough away where it's like you can watch it, but they can't do anything and you can't do anything about it. And I just I love the way that that um, that that was shot. And and yeah, I really, really, really like the use of that building. I have okay, a, a couple other little things and then I'll see what else you want to talk about. Um, another name that popped up sort of like Casey Affleck that was interesting. And this there's, I have nothing to say about this other than um, when I was watching the credits, I saw that one of the executive producers of this film is Jason Blum, Mm. who is now famous for Blumhouse and like all of these like horror movies and things like this. So Mm -hmm. it was really interesting. This is one of his early, uh, his early producer credits. I think it's maybe his uh, fourth or fifth film. And now he has this huge list and has this movie factory, um, well, so well, that was really interesting. Amoreda's early films were horror films. So, oh, interesting. Uh, Nadia is a vampire film, uh, and The Eternal is another horror film, which he, he both of which he made before this. So maybe that's how they made a connection. Do you know what drew what drew uh, Amieta to to sh- to Hamlet? Have, no, you... I haven't had. I I, don't, I only know that little snippet that I quoted from, which came from an article I read about it. So I have not. There's actually a published uh, published screenplay which has this preface, but I haven't had a look at that. So I don't know what, what, what drew him to this. I should also say that he, he then went on to make what, as far as I know, is the most recent adaptation of a, of a Shakespeare play. He did a film of Cymbeline, one of hmm. Shakespeare's late, late um, romances, which also has Ethan Hawke in it in 2014. And I have not seen that. Um, do you have other things you want to talk about with this film? Yeah, I want to say a couple, a couple of other things. Um, one is a, um, a couple scenes that I really love involving Hamlet, or involving Ophelia, rather. Uh, and one, and critics have kind of divided themselves on this, but I happen to love the way that the get that the get thee to a nunnery scene is played out over several of uh, voicemails. I just, I just think that's that's a, again, that's another one of those things that is very nineties specific in some ways, though we still get voicemails, that's fine. But also it seems to me that it gets at another thing that Amrit is interested in, which is the various ways in which human relationships are mediated by technology. Uh, we talked about technology as uh, being self-referential, but it's also, uh, it also mediates. So, you know, you see Polonius in the, uh, in, in the uh, camera, you see the ghost in the camera, you know, you're, it's, it, there's this constant notion that people are uh, never in direct contact with each other um, or, it, or that, that contact is elusive or it, it's dangerous, you know? So I love that. The other scene I love, 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 because this is something you and I have talked about. That is when does a filmmaker really use the resources of the, of the, of the, um, uh, of the genre, uh, of the medium how, how, uh, to, to an interesting effect. And so to me, that moment is when, uh, Polonius is telling Claudius and uh, and Gertrude about Hamlet and Ophelia's relationship. By the way, he borrows that from Branagh, right? Having her in that scene, which Shakespeare does not. And she's standing by the side of the pool, right? And she leaps in the pool, but of course she doesn't leap in the pool. That's her leaping in her imagination. Um, I mean, it's a little bit of a trick, a cheap cinematic trick, but at the same time, it's doing something that only cinema can do. 
You know, you could describe it in words, but it's not the same. You could do it on stage, but that wouldn't work. You could only do that with a film. And so I really love the way that Amoreta uh, does that as well. Oh, and I got to add a third shot, a third scene. I just love, for some reason, the scene of Ophelia going back to her apartment on her bicycle. It just, it, it just, it just seems to me to capture life at that time to go, kind of go back to that theme. I just, I just love that picture of her riding along with the bike with the disc man in the basket. Yes. I also will say that some of the, the, you know, we talked about the time capsule nature of this, some of the fashion of this, this also feels like a, uh, a, a like where, like it's sort of a, 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 a fashion sense that was, that is frozen a little bit in time too. Um, uh, I think it's particularly Ophelia and, um, uh, some of the other characters as well, but I really, I really like that. I also love the, um, <laughs> this is stupid, but I love the, uh, the, Polonius apartment. Yes. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know if spaces like this ex exist in reality, but like, that seems like a pretty amazing place to live. And when he ties her shoe, mm -hmm. I, I mm -hmm. love that after he, after he, up, up, uh, after he um, lectures her, he then ties her shoe. And it's, it's just, it's that father daughter thing. That's such yep. a reminder that she's still a teenager or a young twenties or something, whatever. I'm glad you brought that up. Cause that was this moment where it, it caused me to ask a question, which I think, is what Almereda was wanting us to ask, which is like, how old is she? Yes. You know, like, like let's let's try to place her in time because that one little action, which obviously is not in the text, um, you know, it's not in the Shakespeare doesn't say he he ties her shoes, I presume, um, but it but it's like, how can we indicate something about this relationship? Because that move tells you everything. It tells you how he thinks of himself as a father, um, and how she thinks. Of how he thinks of her as a daughter, like like it that you could you could unpack that one action for for such a long time, and it and it definitely stands out. So I think you're right. I I really really uh, really really appreciate it. And then let me let me add, Sam. That's one more. Again, when people ask this question, what makes Shakespeare so great? Shakespeare, as you know, if you read the plays, has almost no stage directions. So there are stage directions that are often embedded in the lines. An actor says something and you can guess that he or she is reacting to something or about to do something. But otherwise, it is completely the director's choice. So you want Polonius to tie your shoe? Great, because that's all part of the relationship you're trying to develop. Yeah. So uh, I want to, do you have anything else you want to say for this film? No. Okay, I want to close uh, on, on one more question, just thinking about Shakespeare in general. Um, what Shakespearean play would be best suited for a 2021 treatment? If, if you were given um, access to whatever actors you wanted to whatever budget you needed, what would like, what player do you think speaks to 2021? Well, you know, I, I suppose I, I, I would fall back on, on one of my favorite Shakespearean plays in, in, in part because I have to say that after a year of the COVID um, and so, so many other things that are going on in our world, I'm not at times feeling particularly optimistic. So I would love to see a really good King Lear. Um, just Lear, Lear is kind of a go-to play for me for a lot of reasons. And I, that, that's, that, I'd love to see somebody do a really good Lear. And there have been some good Lears recently. There was a very good one with uh, Anthony Hopkins, which is a modern Lear. But that's what I'd like to see. Fantastic. So what do you have for us for next week? Just let me say, before we talk about next week, I just want to add, because um, we talked last week a little bit about Kenneth Branagh's Henry V, okay, it came out in 1989. From Branagh's film to Amoreda's, inclusive, there were 13 Shakespeare adaptations in the 90s. 
Wow. Um, some of them straight adaptations, a couple things like 10 Things I Hate About You that, uh, and a really strange little film called Macbeth in Manhattan with Gloria Rubin from ER. But anyway, that 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 was a perfect time for, for me to start studying Shakespeare on film just because there was so much. So, so we're gonna do another kind of adaptation. We're gonna do a foreign adaptation and um, go back to one of our favorite directors, Akira Kurosawa. Um, Kurosawa did three Shakespeare films. Um, and I think the best of the three, and not the best of the three, but I think the one that I'd like to talk about is Throne of Blood, which is his, ad his adaptation of, of Macbeth. Uh, he also did um, The Bad Sleep Well, which is his adaptation of Hamlet. And he also did Ron, which is at his adaptation of Lear. But let's do Throne of Blood because it's got a Mufuni in it. Uh, and I just think it's a really interesting film. I am so excited. I, listeners can't see, but I pumped my both fists when you said this because this is one that I'm. Uh, I've been talking about with my daughter about. It's like we should we should watch one of these, and I kept saying well, we should watch this. And then once once you brought up Shakespeare adaptations, I thought well, let's hold back because maybe Barrett will put this on the list. I have not seen this. I did see actually. Ron is the first uh, Akira Kurosawa film that I've that I saw in uh, my freshman year of college in one of my honors courses. We mm. we read we read. King Lear. We saw King Lear at the Guthrie. We um, read uh, 10,000 Acres, which is a Lear mm. novelization. So I've, and I will say Lear is the movie I have, or Lear is the play I have encountered the most adaptations of in my life. So I'm actually really excited to not be watching Lear right this, this week <laughs> because I have, I have seen a lot of Lear, but um, I am so excited. I love the play Macbeth. Um, mm. It was, yeah, we read it in high school um and yeah and and i just i'm i'm it's one of the stories that i he writes a lot of timeless stories this is this is one of the the sort of types of stories that i find most fascinating so i'm really curious to see his adaptation of it so i'm excited for that barrett thank you so much for recommending this film uh and for having this conversation i will say if you were uh if you were alive in the late 90s especially if you were in your late teens, early twenties in the, the, the late nineties around the year 2000, I really would say you should watch this, uh, this 2000 Hamlet film. Uh, if nothing else, you get this such an interesting snapshot of this period of time. And I do think, um, one of the great things about watching the adaptation of a play you have read or experienced before is unlike chimes at midnight, where I was spending a little bit of time trying to be like, okay, I need to make sure I'm tracking with what's happening. I could watch this and listen to the language and, but not worry about, do I know what's going to happen? Cause every time a character would show up, it's like, I know who Laertes is. I know who this is. I know who this is. So I could, I could enjoy this movie in a different kind of way. Um, which that's what, it, one of the things that excites me about next week as well is, is Macbeth is a, is a story I'm familiar with. So mm -hmm. I feel like I, um, I don't have to sweat some of the um, some of the plot details so I can pay more attention to some other things. So thank you so much for recommending this film. And we will be back next week to talk about Throne of Blood in the videos. Mm -hmm.